G'day friends, welcome to another episode of the Equip podcast. This week we are turning our attention to total depravity, the first of five weeks that we're going to spend on the Reformed Theology of Salvation. You might remember we looked at that acronym, T-U-L-I-P. wonder if you can remember what each of those letters stands for. The T for total depravity, that's what we're looking at this week. The U for unconditional election. L for limited atonement. I, irresistible grace. And P, perseverance of the saints. In a sense, total depravity is the most important of these to get correct. Because if we don't agree with uh, what this, this statement is, that we are totally depraved in our sin, then probably the, the rest won't follow. We won't see the need for God to unconditionally elect us in eternity past, nor for his irresistible to, grace to, to work in us so that we are brought to salvation. Uh, and so uh, this one's a, an absolutely crucial one to try and understand and get right. Little bit of background. Uh, when we talk about total depravity, it might sound like we're talking about sort of the extent of our sin. Like we only ever sin as much as we possibly can. Yeah, you know, we're, we're totally sinful in the sense that we always sin to the greatest extent. Uh, but that's not what we're talking about here. Obviously, we don't take every opportunity to sin as much as we can. That's not. A true description of what we do in life. Nor is it centrally a question of how incapable we are of choosing God. Even though that is the statement behind total depravity, it's not the central statement. There's actually a bigger statement, a bigger uh, understanding in this doctrine. Uh, and so Charles Ryrie in the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology puts it this way, a proper definition of total depravity should not focus primarily on the questions of sinfulness versus goodness, that is the extent of our sin, or ability versus inability, but on fallen man's relation to a holy God. In that sense, total depravity has to do with our position before God. And when we look at Scripture answering the question, how do we stand before a holy God? Well, we can't. We are totally separated from a holy God. We have totally set ourselves against a holy God. And we have totally exchanged glory and love for this holy God instead for the, the glory and love of created things. So our position before a holy God is one of total fallenness. You could consider how far we've fallen by looking at the Ten Commandments and consider that even if we simply break one of God's laws, we are guilty of transgressing the whole law, as we read in James 2, verses 10 to 11. Centrally, breaking the law has to do with the heart. We disobey Jesus' summary of the law when he says that we shall love the Lord our God with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind, and then also that we would love our neighbor as ourself. We fail at this central heart issue of obedience when it comes to the law, not simply that we break a, a rule here or there. In fact, at the end of the day, we failed to glorify God in all of life, as 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. In all our motivations, in all of our actions, we fail to glorify 
God. Which is why Romans 3.23 can say, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not falling short simply in the sense of, you know, reaching for the cliff and we just missed the edge. No, falling short as in to lack. We lack the quality of glorifying God. And the reason for that, as articulated in Romans 1, 22 to 23, is that claiming to be wise, we've become fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We have exchanged love and glory rightly given to the holy God and our creator, instead giving love and glory to idols, ultimately to self. We thought about this statement, all an unbeliever ever does is sin. And it's controversial, but it's true. Romans 14.23 tells us that, uh, talking about eating food sacrificed to idols, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. And then here's the key line, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Similarly, in Hebrews 11.6, without faith it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. That is, without faith in God, all we ever do is sin. We continue to entrench ourselves in this position of being separate from him and exchanging love for him for love for other things. Now, when we look around at the world, of course, we see non-Christians doing good things. I've got some extremely generous and kind non-Christian friends and family who are very loving people. And we see non-Christians building hospitals overseas. We see Red Cross volunteers you know, giving so much of their time and money to, to go and help the poor. Now, of course, we can say that these people are still doing good for humanity, in a sense. But these things don't proceed from faith in God. They're not done for the glory of God. They're, they're still serving an idol and exchanging the glory of God for that of the creature. I told a story that uh, comes from John Piper, where he asked his son to wash the car, and the son gets really mad because, you know, that's not in the schedule, that's unfair, and I'm busy. Uh, but sure enough, half an hour later, he's out there cleaning the car, because if he doesn't, he won't be able to borrow it later. And so, yes, he's obeying his dad, he's doing a good thing for his dad, and the result is a good thing, the car's clean, but he's angry, he's annoyed, he's only doing it for himself, he's not actually loving and obeying his father. And there's a picture of how Unbelievers, including us before we were in Christ, can do things that have an external sense of goodness, a sense of perhaps good for humanity, but are still not actual good things because they do not proceed from faith in God. They're still giving glory to the creature and not the creator. They are still sin. So all of this to say that our position is one of total depravity. It is one of total opposition to God, total separation from him. Now, related to our sinful position is our sinful condition. We are born sinners. We are born rebels, ignorant of God, haters of God, exchanging the glory of God for the glory of the created thing as, as our impulse from birth. And the reason for that is because we are born in original sin. Romans 5, 12 to 19, if you want to look that up, 
talks about this. We are born in Adam. Uh, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men, men because all sinned. Uh, as well, we hear uh, in verse, where are we? Verse uh, 15, if many died through one's, one man's trespass. Uh, and then also in verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. That is the one sin of Adam and Eve was transmitted in some way to all of us from birth. But the one act of righteousness that Jesus did for us opens the possibility for all people to come to salvation. We'll talk about that more in a few weeks when we get to limited atonement. Uh, but for now, just hear that statement that we are held responsible, as it were, or held culpable for the sin of Adam and Eve. Now, that might not seem totally fair, but there are a couple of things to keep in mind. Uh, one is that uh, if we were in Adam or Eve's position, surely we would have done the same thing. Uh, I mean, just one look at the way we live our lives indicates that we would have made the same choice that they did. Uh, a second is that in the Western world, we tend to think of ourselves as sort of pure autonomous individuals with, you know, I'm on my little island and, and no one else can ultimately affect me. Um, I determine my fate. I'm responsible for what I do and where I go, uh, such that, you know, if we commit a crime, um, then we're considered guilty. And uh, that that's simply it by the eyes of the law. And it, it may or may not actually bring shame on those around us, um, depending on their response. They might say, oh, no, no, no. Well, we never knew that he was this way growing up, and now he's done this thing, and oh, we never knew he was like this. Whereas, of course, in the Eastern world, and the majority world, in a collectivist culture, those things like innocent and guilt uh, aren't as important. It's a lot more about honor and shame. Uh, if a, a, a member of the family commits a crime, it's less that they've done this bad thing, and more that they brought shame on us. They have a much greater sense of our connectedness to one another, such that on the positive side, when um, you know elder relatives uh, grow into an age where they need looking after, it's very uncommon for them to be put into a retirement home. They tend to be taken in by the family. And so there's something there that cultures around the world are cluing into that's actually very biblical. And that is, we are not autonomous individuals simply standing on an island of our own. Our sin affects one another. If you want a picture of that, consider that when someone in the church sins, uh, that sin will inevitably affect our brothers and sisters, perhaps in that it robs us of, of praying for them because instead we're consumed by this sin. Perhaps it robs us of the intimacy with God that would overflow in serving our brothers and sisters. And certainly if we you know, sin in some public or serious way, that's going to hurt our brothers and sisters. So we're actually very connected in terms of our sinfulness or otherwise. And so it makes sense from Paul's point of view to say that actually we are connected to Adam. We are held co-responsible for his sin. Uh, that is actually a, a very biblical view of humanity. We are not autonomous people simply existing on our own island. And so because we are born sinners with Adam as our representative and we are held, as it were, responsible for our sinful condition, 
then we find that we are born with a sick heart, a heart that is totally set against God. Jeremiah 17, 9 says the heart is deceitful above all things. Ezekiel 36, 26 says that we have a heart of stone. Uh, Mark 7, 20 to 23, uh, Jesus talks about how it's not what's outside a person that defiles them, but it's the heart. It's, it's sin that comes from within and then goes out into our actions. And what this means is that even though we have the opportunity to respond to Jesus, uh, we have heard the gospel, we have the opportunity to be saved, none of us make that choice on our own because we are totally depraved. We are totally set against God and original sin has touched every single part of us, including our will. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Or Romans six, uh, Romans 8, sorry, verse 7, uh, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so we reach the conclusion in Romans 3, verses 10 to 12, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now, do remember what we're not saying here. We're not saying that we only ever do the most sin that we can. Of course, God's restraining grace keeps us from doing that. And some people do more sin. They have uh, more of an impact negatively on the world from God's standards, uh, from the standpoint of God's standards, uh, than others, right? Uh, it also doesn't mean that we're devoid of conscience. God does hold us responsible for the choices that we make. And yet, total depravity does mean that we're unable to do anything about our position set against God or our condition and that sin has touched every part of us. Those in the flesh cannot please God. And so we're totally dependent on God to do something about it. And that's what we're going to look at next week when we come to unconditional election. A few questions you might want to think about on this idea of total depravity. Do you agree with it? Do you agree with this biblical sketch that I've put out? Why or why not? What's the basis for your reasoning? If someone doesn't believe in total depravity, then what might this mean for their view of God? What might it mean for their view of people? What might it mean for their view of salvation? And then as you think about this doctrine of total depravity, what's something that brings up awe or thankfulness to God? Considering who we are, who he is, what we've done, how does it bring you to thankfulness? You might want to have a look at that diagram on the last page of the, uh, the class notes. Uh, I think that's a really good diagram about why we should be so grateful to God. I've also put a couple of things on the website for you. So there's three different articles you can look at. The first couple are sort of more like BuzzFeed articles that have, you know, here's seven reasons why you should believe in total depravity or here's 10 things you might have missed. Have a look at those. They'll be a help to you. Uh, there's also for the adventurous, a deeper article that goes into quite a lot of detail. Um, have a look at that if you'd like to think more about this issue. Uh, and then next week, we'll take a look at unconditional election. Look forward to seeing you there.